Hi, this is Chris Kipp, lead pastor of Renaissance Church in Richmond, Texas. Thank you for streaming or downloading this podcast today. I hope this resource blesses you. If you haven't joined us at a worship gathering or at a house church yet, we want you to come. You can find all that information and more at rin-church.org. I pray that you are encouraged today by the proclamation of God's word. I shared a few weeks ago that I just had a sense. I've told you the story about how I had coronavirus. I wound up in the hospital for a few days and then it took me a long time to get better. I was just one of those people that has a really difficult time with it. And in the midst of being kind of down and just sitting for a long time, I had lots of time to reflect. And uh, in that time, I just had a, a hunch, a sense that I felt like from the Lord that this next season is just gonna continue to be kind of difficult for us, okay? I don't like that, I don't want that to happen. If it doesn't happen, I'll be dancing down the aisles with you. Okay, it's going to be okay. We're, we're going to be okay, but we serve the God who warns us. And so I've been thinking as a pastor who wants to prepare people, to equip people for what God has in store for us, uh, I, I wanna talk to us today about your faith in God's power. Your faith in God's power, because I think it will equip us for whatever is coming our way. Whether that be something individually or something that we all experience, the Lord knows I don't, okay? But I just want us to be prepared for whatever comes. And I was thinking about the book of James. Now, if you go to James chapter one, you don't have to go there, I'll tell you what it says. This is not gonna be our main text today. But in James chapter one, he's speaking to these believers that are going through a hard time. They're going through difficulty. And he begins by saying, consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials. Have you all heard that before? Your friend quotes it to you. You send them a text, be like, man, it's so hard. Things are falling apart. You know, my, you know we have the whole list of stuff. <laughs> And then they respond back, consider it pure joy. You're like, mm, I'm gonna punch you in the throat next time I see you, right? Because you're like, come on, like this is hard. Consider it joy, what are you talking about? And he says, because you know the testing of your faith produces endurance. That there's this testing of faith that the Lord gives to us and it's a good thing, all right? And yet at the end of the book, in James chapter five, he, he says, for example, for those that are going through the difficulty of sickness, that they should call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And he says the prayer of faith will save the sick person will be healed, his, his sins will be forgiven. And so it's like this mashup of like, hey, when you're going through difficulty, God's doing something, consider it joy. He, he's building something, he's testing your faith. It, it's hard, but consider it joy. Oh, and by the way, pray for God's power to come and heal and save. It's like both. 
So I want to look at the tension of how do we walk in both, hey, Lord, we're thankful for whatever comes our way because we know you're working, and yet, Lord, we want to see your power break through. Your faith, God's power. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 17. If you want to go there with me, it's going to be the main text that we're going to be looking at. And what I, I want us to look at is how can we walk in power? How can we walk in power? Because if you read the Bible, if you've been around church, if you've heard enough sermons, like you know like God has all power, and we know that God has done powerful things, and yet when we look at our daily lives, we're kind of like, eh, not seeing it. How do we walk in the power of God? Matthew 17 14 through 20, and we're going to be reading an account of Jesus. And what I love about Jesus is that it's so recalibrating. When you come back and read the Gospels, it's like you can fall into certain ditches as you sort of like read the Bible. But then when you come back to Jesus, it kind of cuts through all the ditches that you fall into and it recalibrates us. And he's this fascinating blend of mercy and grace and forgiveness and kindness and yet he's unflinchingly honest. He's truthful. He's devout and completely faithful. And yet he rejects the phony piety in this sort of rebellious against human falsehood and fake religion kind of way. And we see both in Jesus. Compassionate and sacrificial he has the most important mission in the history of the world, and yet he's never in a hurry, and he never takes a shortcut. It's like he's always just faithfully, steadily, beautifully, wonderfully working. He's fascinating. He's holy, wonderful. So let's look at an account of Jesus. Here's what it says. Where are we at? Verse 14. When they reached the crowd, a man approached and knelt down before him. This is the disciples. Lord, he said, have mercy on my son because he has seizures and suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. Jesus replied, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you? Bring him here to me. Then Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and from that moment the boy was healed. Then the, the disciples approached Jesus privately and said, why couldn't we drive it out? Verse 20, because of your little faith, he told them, for truly I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. This is the word of the Lord. So this is a fascinating account of Jesus. We, we have this father with a son, and if you're a parent and you have a child that is struggling, that's sick, that's having issues, you can feel the desperation of this father. Amen? 
right? He didn't have urgent care to run to at like 11 p.m. He's, he's trying to find a way to get his son better because the son is having these seizures. He's, he's suffering terribly. He falls into the fire, then he falls into the water, and he's looking for healing. However, it turns out it wasn't just healing. It's like the boy needed deliverance. It was more than just healing. It was, and we see this interplay in the New Testament of healing and deliverance are kind of like this connected thing, right? It's healing and deliverance. And it shows us that sometimes there are physical ailments that we experience in our bodies that have spiritual causes. Did you know that? In our rational world with Google, and we can put all of our symptoms in there and say search, and then we can find out what it is. We can self-diagnose, and then we can figure out, like, what kind of doctor do I need to go to? And then we set the appointment, and we come up with the treatment course, right? And we have sort of some tools that they didn't have, and we think that everything is physical, right? Because of the tools that we have and the modern medicine that we have, and yet... We see that there's sometimes there are things that we experience in our physical bodies that actually have some spiritual causes. Not everything, by the way, but some things. It reveals the presence of evil in the world. This is a boy. It's not some dude who's been sinning his whole life and now he's got like this terrible like darkness in his life. It's like it's a boy. And it reveals the, the pure evil of evil, of how evil it is. The evil one, Satan, his demons are so evil that they would attack an innocent child. Clearly, it depicts the presence of evil in the world. And yet, let's be honest, how many of us live like there's really like that kind of evil in the world? Do, do we believe that Satan and his demons do that kind of stuff Today, in 2021, we have this moment with Jesus, and, and it kind of suggests to us that these disciples should have been able to heal the boy, to deliver the boy from this dark thing. Right? I mean, that's kind of what it shows us. And, and we know that before this, Jesus had authorized the 12 and the 72, and he sent them out two by two, and they were going to go proclaim the kingdom, and then they were going to heal the sick and cast out demonic things. And they had great success. In fact, they saw all this miraculous stuff happen, and they came back and like, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. He's like, hey, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven, right? This, these guys had had some success. It wasn't their first rodeo. But then, here we are. And what's so interesting is that Jesus seems miffed about the whole thing, right? I mean, it's, look at that in verse 17. He, he says to them in verse 17, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you? Now, I don't know what you picture when you picture Jesus, but are you picturing Jesus saying stuff like that? <laughs> That's what I love about Jesus. He never says what you think he's going to say when you think he's going to say it. How long must I put up with you? Ouch. Bring him here to me. 
And at first glance, we're like, wait, wait, no, who's he talking to? Is he talking to the father? Like, come on, bring him here. Unbelieving, perverse. Is he talking to the boy? Is he talking to the crowd? Well, then, as you saw, verse 19, he's talking to his people. You hear that? He's talking to his disciples, his followers. And when he says unbelieving, perverse generation, he's not talking to the world. He's not talking to the crowd. He's not talking to the Father. He's talking to his disciples. Why couldn't we drive him out? Because of your little faith. My first point's a little bit, I don't know, a a tough pill to swallow, but let me share it with you from what we just read. The lack of faith of Jesus' followers results in those being held captive by darkness, like this little boy, remaining in their captivity. Did you see that in the story? They couldn't drive it out. Thankfully, Jesus comes down the mountain at just the right moment. God's sovereign. He's amazing like that. He shows up at the right time. But that's a tough pill to swallow. The lack of faith of Jesus' disciples leaves the captives in their captivity. Now, Thankfully, Jesus does show up at that moment and it reveals to us that Jesus is supreme over all things, that no issue is too big for Jesus. There's no stronghold, there's no darkness, there's no demonic thing that's more powerful than Jesus. There's, there's nothing on planet Earth that's too hard for him to solve. There's no sickness that's too far gone for Jesus to heal. Like he has all power, all authority, and he can just say, bring him here to me, boom, it's done. It's cool. It's amazing. The power of Jesus, which reveals to us that it wasn't a power problem. It was a faith problem. It wasn't a power problem. It was a faith problem. These disciples had Jesus' authority and all the resources of heaven behind them. They just doubted it. They didn't believe. That's what he tells them. (laughs) Verse 20, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed. By the way, you know already, because you've heard preachers talk about this, that that was the smallest seed, the smallest known seed at Jesus' time. There was nothing that they knew of that was smaller. It literally fits like on your fingertip. It's a tiny little seed. And, And I've searched for something profound to say about the mustard seed, right? Because it feels like surely there's some sort of profound thing. We can resurrect it like, you know, like this was really a good moment, right? It wasn't a slam, but you know, it's what we want to do when we read that, but it winds up, it's just embarrassing. What he's saying is that their faith is smaller than the smallest known thing. Ouch again, right? That's what he's saying. If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, 
But let me show you the hopefulness of the story. Because right now we're all feeling like, oh gosh, I'm a, my faith is smaller than the smallest known thing. Jesus doesn't say, if you have faith the size of an elephant. He doesn't say, if you have faith the size of an apple. He says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, the smallest known seed of his time. It's not large, it's not medium, it's not schmedium, it's not even small, it's tiny. If you have faith that's tiny, it's not a power problem, it's a faith problem. And the shocking part of the story is that mountain-moving faith is mustard seed-sized. Second thing that I think we understand from the story is that our level of faith is directly related to how much of God's power we are seeing in and through our lives. I know what you're thinking. Chris, you can't say that. Right? That's really discouraging to people. Just say like, you're not seeing God's power because your faith is too small. Like, you can't say that. The problem is that that's what Jesus says in the account. That our level of faith is directly related to how much of God's power we're seeing in and through our lives. Why couldn't we drive it out, Jesus? It's your little faith. It wasn't some other reason. It was literally, your faith is just so small. And throughout the Bible, it is normal for God to do powerful things through his people. Read the Old Testament. Read Elijah and Elisha and David and Samuel. You'll see over and over, God does like amazing stuff through his people. Clearly, it's in the life of Jesus and the Gospels. It's in the book of Acts, the early church. We see, we see these amazing things, and it was normal. It was normal. I was thinking this week how, um, you know, in, in Christian leadership world, you probably don't even know that that's a thing, but there's like a whole, like, spectrum of books all about leadership for, like, Christian leaders, pastors, people like that. And it's, and it's pretty much like conventional wisdom. It's like, hey, I love that you pray. By the way, there might be a few practical things that could help you, Right? Amen to that. We need practical help. But what you don't see people writing is you need to enlarge your faith. You need to heal some people, cast out some demons, share the gospel with power. And guess what? Your church is going to grow. How to grow a church for dummies, according to Jesus and the Bible. You don't see it. Because largely, I think we've turned away from the idea of God's power in the church. 1 Corinthians 2, 4 through 5, Paul tells them, this people of Corinth, which by the way would be very uh, a similar context to us here in America. He says, my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. You know why? 
so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. What he's saying is, look, if I can talk you into this with my wisdom, someone else is gonna talk you right out of it as soon as you leave this place. What you need is to see the power of God. It's normal in the Bible. We hear stories on the mission field and we're like, wow, that's normal on the mission field. And yet we come here to our regular lives and it's normal to not see the power of God and we're content with it. Why? Why? Why are we content with that? If it's normal in the Bible, shouldn't we expect it to be normal in our churches, in our house churches, in our lives, to see the power of God? I, I think this is also crucial to our mission. I, uh, I came across a book by a pastor, author, a seminary professor, his name is Rob Reamer, and he tells some stories, and I thought these were insightful. He grew up watching Scooby-Doo. Do, do we have any Scooby-Doo fans? You, you grew up watching Scooby-Doo? Maybe your kids? Yeah? See, my kids love that show. And Scooby-Doo, the plot line is this. There's something scary. It's a ghost. And yet they figure out that it's not really a ghost. It's a person hiding, pretending to be a ghost, right? Plot line of every Scooby-Doo episode. So this guy's at a friend's house. The talk got boring. He wandered into the living room. The, the, the man's son was watching Scooby-Doo eating some cereal. And so he thought, I'm gonna sit down and watch some Scooby-Doo with this young man. He watches the show. At the end of the show, the ghost was a ghost. He was like, hmm, something is changing in our culture. The town that he was in was a, a suburb of, of Boston. And his father had leukemia, very, very serious uh, ver or type of leukemia, very aggressive, terrible, terrible cancer. He's being treated by the hospital that trains Harvard medical students. And every nurse, every nurse practitioner, every doctor that came in to uh, talk with his father asked him if he would like to receive Reiki uh, treatment or Reiki healing. Have y'all heard of this before, Reiki? It's a Japanese word that means energy healing. It's basically spiritual healing without Jesus. And there are two kingdoms. There's a kingdom of light and there's a kingdom of darkness. And this is not kingdom of light. And he said, something is changing in our culture if Harvard medical students are being trained to give people Reiki. He, uh, at a local public school near him, a neighboring town, brought a medium in seven different times. And the medium would give prophetic words to the students. Again, kingdom of light, kingdom of darkness. This is not kingdom of light kind of stuff. He went to the district, the school board, and fought it, and they got it to end. And as soon as he moved away, he heard that the medium was back in the schools again. Something is shifting in our culture. There's been a form of Christianity that's a response to rationalism, which is what has caused the cooling of faith for many in America, where it's like, you know, we kind of like, we've reasoned our way out of believing in God because we think we evolved and all this other stuff, right? And so we've kind of reasoned our way into this coldness of faith. But he's saying, look, something is changing in our culture to where people are saying, you know, we want to know what supernatural is. 
All across Houston, when you walk into coffee shops, you're going to find witches, and you're going to find tarot cards, and you're going to find the Satanist club gathering. Why? Because people know there's something beyond this, and we want to figure out what it is. And what they are looking for is the power of God. And they're being offered an alternative that is dark and demonic and bondage-inducing. I believe the Spirit is speaking to the church again that if we have faith the size of a mustard seed, nothing will be impossible for you. And I know what you're thinking. Okay, what about God's sovereignty? I, uh, you know, we pray for things. What about God's sovereignty? I'm gonna, I think I have a picture. Can, I, can you go to the next slide? Um, this was a very special picture for me. That's my mom who passed away in March. <clears throat> That's us praying over her. We're doing what James 5 said to do. We're anointing her with oil. She had been through a cancer diagnosis, and it was bad, spread everywhere. And my mom would just say, do you think God can heal me? I'm like, yes, God can heal you. Absolutely, God can heal you. One time I said, God's going to heal you either here or there. She did not like that, by the way. She got mad at me. She kind of chewed me out later. It's like, you know, I need you to like believe that he can heal me now. And we prayed and we believed. And I think our faith was like mustard seed size as we were praying for my mom to get healed. And guess what? The Lord took her home. Psalm 139, 16 says, all my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them came to be. Is God sovereign? Yes. But what you don't know is that she first got cancer when she was 40 years old and through the wonders of medicine and the prayers of God's people, she lived for another 28 years without any health problems. She was healed for 28 amazing years. And yet God is sovereign. The boy that was delivered, he's not here to tell us the story in person because eventually something got him. Every one of us. We, we will at some point when the Lord says, this was the last day that I had planned for you, we're going to leave this life and we're going to go stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Right. Is God sovereign? Absolutely. But when the disciples can't drive this thing out of the boy, they don't sit there and say, you know, God's sovereign Maybe this was just God's will for your son to get thrown into a fire and into the water. And when Jesus came down the mountain, he would have said, they're right, guys. It's my sovereign will for your son to be sick all the time. No, Jesus cast the thing out of the boy so that he can be well. Sovereignty is never an excuse for passivity. Do you hear what I'm saying? 
Sovereignty is never an excuse for passivity. I found a quote, this is from the book by Rob Reamer, the book's entitled Spiritual Authority. Here's what he says. Teaching a version of sovereignty that produces a passive faith may make us feel better about the impotent results we're seeing in the church, but it won't help release the kingdom in our midst. I think he's right. That maybe we've used the sovereignty card a whole lot when the Lord said, no, it's not a sovereignty thing, it's not a power thing, it's a faith thing. It's a faith thing. Third point, Jesus repeatedly, unmistakably, and unapologetically calls his followers to bigger faith over and over again. Again, you're like, Chris, you can't say that. Jesus said it. Matthew 6.30, if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? He's talking about worrying about stuff in life, and he's like, increase your faith. Matthew 8, 26, he said to them, why are you afraid, you of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. It's the story of the disciples in the storm on the boat with Jesus. Matthew 14, 31, immediately Jesus reached out, talking to Peter, who stepped onto the water, which, by the way, that's, that takes great faith. I'm, I'm, it's amazing. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand, caught hold of him, and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Matthew 14, 12 through 14. Again, the words of Jesus. Truly, truly, when Jesus starts with truly, we're like, okay, like we need to pay attention. Truly, your translation might say, truly, truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And he will do even greater works than these because I'm going to the Father and whatever you ask in my name I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son if you ask me anything in my name I will do it that's an audacious massive promise and what did Jesus do? Matthew 9.35, Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. And he says, look, you'll do the things I do. You'll, you'll do even greater things because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I'll do it. What kind of promise is this? And in every instance, every turn, we see Jesus just saying, come on, trust me, believe in me. Just lift, lift it a little bit more. Let's just get from like, like less than a mustard seed up to a mustard seed. Would you believe in me? So how do I grow in my faith? Let's talk about that. You're like, I want that. You know, I've prayed for a lot of people for a lot of stuff, and I would, I would love to see some power in my life. How do I get from less than a mustard seed to a mustard seed? <laughs> I 
by the way, I'm preaching to myself, okay? I'm not like Mr. Super Faith and I can, okay? I'm, just so you know, like, I, I should be right there with you just taking notes like, yes. Faith grows through fellowship with God. You're like, wow, that's profound. Never, never thought of that before. We talk about it all the time, right? Fellowship with God, seeking him. It's praying, it's scripture. It's just stopping and maybe letting all the stuff that you're worried about like fall to the ground and say, no, 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 Lord, I'm just gonna lift my eyes to you. I'm just gonna fellowship with you. I'm seeking your presence. You know, if you pray and you read the Bible, from a checklist mentality, it's probably not filled with fellowship. But there's a posture of the heart that's like, I'm going to pray, but Lord, it's not like I'm just checking off my list. It's like, I need your presence. When I open my Bible, it's not like, you know, I need more knowledge. Well, yeah, I need more knowledge, but I need the presence of God. It grows through fellowship. Jesus modeled this so well for us how he would just slip away to pray. He'd climb up on the mountain. He'd pull an all-nighter. <laughs> and he said that he only did what he saw the Father doing. And he only said what he heard the Father saying. And he only went where the Father was leading him. It's like he was just in fellowship with God. So, faith grows through fellowship. Next, faith grows by taking faith steps. I'm so grateful that these disciples were there. Like, they were there in this moment to pray over this boy, and I am so grateful that they even failed because it was a teaching moment. You know, sometimes in life we have to fail forward. I don't know if you've ever done that before. You, you just make some mistakes, and it totally blows up in your face, faith, and then, or face, and then you've got to go take a new step, right? You've got to get back on the horse. We fail forward. And what's so cool is that in these guys' lives, in the book of Acts, these same disciples, people would actually, they would line up the sick along these like mats on the ground where they knew the disciples were, were gonna walk and they, would just, they were just hoping that a shadow of one of those disciples would, would fall across one of those sick people and they would get well. That's crazy. If we did that here, you'd probably be like, that's a weird church, I'm not going there anymore. Hello, that was the early church. John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Movement, says that God spells faith R-I-S-K, risk. These men would go on and they would pray faith-filled prayers and God would show up in power and amazing things were gonna happen, but it's gonna take some failures along the way, that we're going to have to take some risks. You know, sometimes Jesus will throw us into the deep end of the pool. He'll let, us, he'll let us get that prompting when we're out somewhere and it's like, I just feel like I'm supposed to talk to that person and yet inside you're like, I don't wanna to talk to that person, I'm so scared to talk about it, I don't, I don't know what I'm gonna say, it's right. You just have the sense of like, the Lord's leading me to do something and he wants us to just kinda of go and talk person. <laughs> it 
It's like a, if you've, you know, we've all blown up a balloon before, and it's like the more air you, you blow into that, the more, the more capacity, it's like this stretching, and there's a stretching that takes place in taking faith steps where it's like our capacity grows. And thirdly, faith grows by being desperate enough to ask. Lord, have mercy on my son. He falls into the fire and the water. He suffers terribly. God, I've tried everything. God, I've been everywhere. I've been to all the doctors and all the people. And I, I've even gone to a couple like weird temple places and they couldn't do it. It's like, I've tried everything. Lord, maybe you can do something. And he's desperate enough to ask. The disciples, in their desperation, why couldn't we cast it out? And they get a lesson they'll never forget from God. When it comes to desperation, you know, it's, it's often the platform for breakthrough in our lives. It's that rock bottom moment that we all talk about, like when you finally hit the bottom and you're like, the only way forward is up. I'm at the lowest point. It's a state of hopelessness leading to rashness or extreme behavior. That's according to the Merriam-Western Dictionary. A state of hopelessness leading to rashness or extreme behavior and is typically not viewed as a good thing, right? If you're dating someone and then you, someone says, oh, they're so desperate, you're like, back away, right? Desperate is a bad thing. Unless you're desperate for Jesus. Then now it's a good thing. It's when we finally stop hoping in our strength or man's ways and we start looking to God and his ways. It's when we won't settle for anything less than a divine breakthrough for God's intervention. It's the place we get to when we've exhausted every other option. And we finally throw ourselves down before the mercy of God. Faith grows by being desperate enough to ask. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Church Sermon Podcast. To contact us or find out more information, visit rin-church.org.